If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. But just before I read that, I'm going to read two other verses. And if you want to look at those, uh, you can put a finger in Mark 9 and turn over to James 4, verses 13 and 14 where we read, Come now, those saying today or tomorrow, we shall proceed into such and such a city, and we shall spend a year there, and we shall do business, and we shall produce gain. And you don't understand what sort of people you are. Because you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. In our church family, we certainly had a sterling example of that this week. If you would have been at the USF game on Friday night at 8 o'clock, you would have seen Paul and Darlene Eidsness there, and everything, they were just cheering for their team. Uh, But with just a couple of minutes to go in the game, Paul knew that he wasn't feeling quite right. And so they, several from our church actually, including one of his sons, walked him out. And, uh, and he got medical attention and uh, turned out to have uh, something uh, called a, an aortic dissection, which is a very complicated uh, thing to have. And by 2.30 in the morning, he's in open-heart surgery for the next five hours. And James says, and that's how life goes. That's how life goes. That's not just a Paul Eidsness thing. That's not, that's, that's all of us. We are of such a kind. We don't know what our life will be like tomorrow. I look out at so many of you, you all, almost everybody in this room, but so many of you in just recent years, this massive diagnosis shows up and you move from one day to the next and just everything is 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 changed um and we learn that together so be praying be praying for paul and arlene and their family Uh, but as the author of the epistle of the hebrews sort of exhorts us warns us even a little bit He says, but when you pray for that kind of person, pray as those who are also in the body. Um, Pray as those who are also in the body. And almost certainly have such days ahead. Paul has come through that surgery. There's a long way to go. In, uh, in recovery, so just very much be praying for them uh, today and the next couple days uh, in particular. 
as they hope a lot of positive things uh, will begin to happen. Um, Let's stand together. Mark 9, verses 9 and 10. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Look to the Lord in prayer, where prayer this morning is based off of Psalm 25, which is an alphabetic psalm. Uh, The idea of the alphabetic psalm is each 22 lines in it, there's 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they put together this kind of poem because this is like a, a prayer of how to walk with God through difficulty, as we would say in English, from A to Z. As they would say, from Aleph to Tau. So here's like a complete course in this prayer of how you walk with God through the challenges and difficulties of life that inevitably come. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. O Father, unto you, O Lord, our souls we lift up. Our God, in you we trust that we shall not be put to shame, that you will not allow our enemies to be exalted over us. But Lord, that all those who wait upon you shall not be put to shame, but all of those around the world in our cultural setting who treacherously chase after emptiness, that they would ultimately be put to shame to the vindication of your will and way. Lord, we praise that you would cause us to know your ways, that you would teach us your paths, that you would guide us in your faithfulness, and that you would teach us that you are the God of our salvation. Lord, enable us to wait for you all the day. Lord, we already mentioned Paul and Darlene, that you enable them to wait for you through these next days. Lord, we think of Pat and Sandy who have been waiting for you through a cancer treatment now, coming up on four years. Tim and Lisa Soundy for two years, and Jay Parker through so much of this year. And Barb Cook, struggling with lung problems now for years on end. Deanna Streeter with her cancer and Susan Elgersma. The recent surgery, but now a week of recovery. 
at a rehab center where there's pain and difficulty and and Lord, we know of many others who have surgery on the horizon and trouble in their lives, and we pray that you would enable them to wait on you, to look to you, to rest upon you all the days as they walk forward. Remember your mercy to us, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For these are eternal attributes of yours. O Lord, the sins of our youth and our transgressions we ask that you would not remember against us for Christ's sake, but that you would remember us according to your steadfast love for the sake of your own goodness and kindness, O Lord. For you are good and upright, and therefore you instruct sinful people like ourselves as to how to walk in the way, to rest in you, to trust you, to serve you. Lord, so guide us in our poverty, justice, teach us in our humble and meek state your stable ways because your paths are indeed steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's true for all of those keeping your covenant and your testimonies, which we hope to be among those who are keeping. For the sake of your name, O Lord, we ask these things. Now come and enable us to hear your voice in the midst of our troubles like the psalmist has, and that we would learn how to take our greatest days of spiritual clarity and exaltation and rest on them in our more normal days of trouble and trial and questions. We ask for all these things to be given in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. It's actually a proverbial phrase now, right? We we talk about somebody of having had or yourself as having had a mountaintop experience. Such and such was for me a mountaintop experience. Uh, I've shared uh, many times, though there's no geographical aspect to it, that, you know, reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God in the summer of 1977 was for me something of a mountaintop experience. Uh, Though, as I say, no geographical proximity uh, to a mountain. Uh, in in that uh, reading, other than that I could certainly see Mount Pope from where I read it, but I wasn't up on it. Um, But in our context, they have had, both in the full sense of the metaphor and in its geographical dimension, a mountaintop experience. And as part of 
their mountaintop experience, they saw two Old Testament figures of prominence, each famous for their own mountaintop experiences. Moses actually very famous for two separate mountaintop experiences. The first one, as recorded in Exodus 19 with the first giving of the law, here's what we read. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud in the mountain, on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and smoke went out of it, and went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder, and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And the giving of the law, a mountaintop experience. But as so many mountaintop experiences, his ended in his finally coming down the mountain only to find the entire nation in rebellion. Exodus 32, and Moses smashes the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 33 and 34, he's back up on the mountain for his second mountaintop experience. The second giving of the law, taking it up. Beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top, on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And that's where, of course, in the cleft of a rock, according to Exodus 33, the Lord comes by in verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a merciful God, Gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. And on he goes. Now Elijah, who also shows up in the Mount of Transfiguration, he also not only has a mountaintop experience, But he has a mountaintop experience on exactly the same mountain that Moses did. 
and likely not only on the same mountain, but quite likely at exactly the same geographical location, in exactly the same cleft in the rock. Now, the reason for believing that is not reflected in the English translation at all, but is certainly there in the Hebrew text of 1 Kings 19, 9 and following, where it opens this way, and here's how the ESV has it, and there he came to a cave. But that's not what the Hebrew text says. The Hebrew text says, and there he came to the cave. There he came to the cave. And some scholars, and I am certainly in agreement with them, believe that the author of 1 Kings is saying, and, and Elijah made his way to the exact same place where Moses has had the glory of God pass by. He's in the cave that Moses had had his mountaintop experience on. And he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it to pieces, and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Another great mountaintop experience. And these two mountaintop experience guys are the ones who are called to Peter, James, and John's mountaintop experience only by the end of it, as we noted, they're vanished. And they're not there anymore. And Jesus alone is to be in their focus. And so in Mark 9, 7, and 8, we read, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus alone. I say, that's the mountaintop experience of Peter and James and John. 
And as we find them in our text for this morning, it's just ended. And they are on their way down the mountain. I stated our thesis for this morning this way. We are to hold mountaintop experiences fast to ourselves. That is, we're going to need them. We're going to need them um, as we pass through uh, life. We're going to need them as we pass over the ground that the psalmist in Psalm 25 is praying about. Because it's often difficult, challenging (laughs) ground. Uh, We are to hold mountaintop experiences fast to ourselves. We'll look at this from four angles this morning. Number one, we are to carry with us our genuine encounters with God. And that's what these three just had, right? That's the previous paragraph. Verses 2 to 8 of of Mark 9 is their great experience on this high mountain, unnamed. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter, then you remember, quickly underestimates Jesus and receives this rebuke. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. Um, Jesus had just been manifest uh, to them as the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. There he is with Moses and Elijah. This is quite an experience. But the big takeaway is in the simple statement. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Uh, That's what you grab, grab, grasp fast to yourself as you you go down um, the mountain. Um, uh, The whole vision ends, of course, with this picture of Jesus, only Jesus. Um, Now, when we have a mountaintop experience, there's a couple of things that we have to resist, and uh, and, and one of them is exceedingly important, and it's, it's right on the surface of things here, right? So you, you have your mountaintop experience, and then we say to ourselves, well, but now, now it's time to return to real life. Real life. When you have a great spiritual experience, God seems to be everything, but then, then you have to go back to real life to normal life. 
And in our secularity-saturated times, that means life where, frankly, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are just a lot more important than Jesus. That's real life. Real life is where the fact that Jim Harbaugh is leaving Michigan to go to coach an NFL team, that's a lot bigger than Jesus. That's real life. That's real life. Uh, For that's the life of our cultural conversation of... uh, of the past number of days, right? And, and we're so tempted to fall into that, to think, no, there's these spiritual experiences, but then there's the other 95% of my time, which is real life, and has nothing to do with those things. And that's completely the wrong takeaway. Completely, completely, completely. You see, real life, every single piece of life is Jesus-centered and Jesus-saturated if you understand reality as the Bible presents it to you. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, right? The Apostle Paul Ephesians 1.10, but reading into it from verse 7. So you got a couple of pronouns. They're all about Jesus, and then proper name of Christ is in the middle, of the title of his Christ is in the middle, and then more, and then more pronouns. So here's how it goes. Uh, Ephesians 1.7-10. This is a little commercial for uh, Jeff's class across the way in the next hour, which will be in... Uh, the early parts of Ephesians. So here we go. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the majesty of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth, In Christ. So in Christ's redemption, and then mentions of the Father, the Father, and now we're back to Christ, and now we stay with Christ. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of the times, to unite all things in Christ, in him, things in heaven and on the earth. See, every aspect of every life, every day, all day long, is Christ-related. That's how disciples are to teach themselves to think. It's not easy. You have to go completely against the secularity-saturated culture in which you live to pull that off. But that's precisely the calling of the disciple, is to go against that secularity-saturated cultural situation and to understand that what these guys saw and what we saw as we studied the passage 
is the heart of reality, the centrality and the importance of Jesus, who is the Christ. Secondly, we need to realize that not everyone is ready to hear of our experience. Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. That's strange advice, right? A commentator's comment, Jesus does this repeatedly throughout the Gospels. Don't tell anyone who healed you. Don't tell anyone in this case what you have just seen. That's why we had the worship team read the Matthew passage. That's a healing example of of this, right? Where in Matthew 8, 1-4... When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone about that. Well, why not? Why not? Well, there's, there's no obvious answer to that. Um, and if you read a lot of commentaries, you can, you'll find out that the scholars don't have any obvious answer to that either. Uh, they take some guesses, but you can tell that's all they are. They're, they're just guesses. Now here I think we can, do, we can do a little better than that because of the immediate context uh, leading up to this. So they've seen Jesus shine. He looks like he is the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7, 9. Like, whoa, whoa, that's who Jesus is. Um, But don't tell anybody what you saw. Don't tell them about Moses and Elijah. Don't tell them about the dazzling clothing. Don't tell them about the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Well, why ever not? Well, because in a very short period of time, everything in the experience of these disciples, including you three, are going to contradict all of those images. Reality is not going to look anything like that as Jesus is arrested and mocked and beaten and crucified. He won't seem to be anything like that person, the Ancient of Days. Far from it. We already saw in the last chapter, right? Peter is already wired in this direction. He's hardwired in this direction. When Jesus starts talking about being arrested and so forth, remember what Peter says to him. Mark 8.32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> like, no, 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 Jesus, no, no. Enough with arrest, enough with beatings, enough with crucifixion, enough with death. Take it from me. None of that is going to happen to you. Well, now, given what he's seen on the mountain, Peter's probably ready to triple down on that. Ha! Just what I thought. The glowing clothes, Moses, Elijah. Now, this is what we signed on for. 
finally, finally, the stuff, the payoff of real discipleship is showing up. Wonderful. Once in a while, I had my doubts, but now I know. Ha <laughs> ha! All right. Now you're talking. And Jesus says, well, don't spread that message. Don't be spreading that message right now, because that's not actually how things are going to go in the kingdom of heaven. And you're going to learn how they're going to go in a different way than you think. Than you think. Um, you got to be careful what you learn from secular songs, but once in a while, you know, they'll spin off a line that's pretty, pretty insightful. It's mostly a relatively perverse song, but Leonard Cohen in his song, Hallelujah, has a line that's always really, really struck me. And it, it matches up so nicely, right, with the marriage ceremony that we've used now for several hundred years out of the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican ceremony. But Leonard Cohn's line in, in Hallelujah is this. He says, Love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken. Hallelujah. Love is not a victory march. Sometimes when we do weddings, aside from the vows themselves, you'll hear people talk as if marriage is a victory march. Nothing easier. You just you fall more and more in love, and it's more and more romantic, and it's just so, so very wonderful and satisfying and, and fulfilling one day, you know, one day with your spouse, to borrow from the gospel song, is always sweeter than the day before. Well, see, the Book of Common Prayer said, yeah, I wouldn't be jumping to those conclusions quite yet. Here's what you need to remind yourself of when you get married, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That is to say... Marital love is not a victory march. It's the will of God. It's a wonderful gift. But it's not, it's not like that. It's not like that. And he's telling us here, Jesus is warning, and discipleship isn't like that either. It's not just one long victory march. You know, it's not the simplicity, right, of the C.S. Lewis line, like in discipleship, what do you do? You move further up and further in. Isn't that nice? Further up and further in. It's largely true. But, oh, boy, the way that you move further up and further in is full of ups and downs and disappointments and complications and brokenheartedness and disappointment and challenge. And so he says, 
don't talk about this mountaintop experience quite yet because they'll misunderstand it. Be injured by it rather than helped by it. Eugene Peterson in one of his books, The Pastors, but it's about any kind of Christian service, the kind of Christian service that that you're involved in, whatever that is. Uh, Peterson warned, if you think if you think that your Christian service is always going to be like you riding a white stallion in a religious parade, waving to the crowd, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to be like that. It is not going to be like that. Uh, It's going to have ups and downs and disappointments and You see, in mountaintop experiences in isolation, what a wonderful experience Peter, James, and John had up there on the mountain. Yes, they did. They really did. But don't be talking about it out of context quite yet until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That brings us to our third point. We are to recognize the pivotal nature of, of resurrection thinking, the pivotal nature of resurrection thinking. So as they're coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Now that, that seems all of a sudden, that's like a million miles, right, from the dazzling white clothing of the Ancient of Days. Because, of course, To be raised from the dead, you must first be put to death. That's the the downside of the little phrase, raised from the dead. Uh, And that's the part that, of course, Peter wanted to skip. Oh, no, Lord, we're we're not doing any of that stuff where they put you to death. Quit talking like that. Discouraging. No, no, no. But Jesus says, yes, yes, yes. Don't talk about this until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Why? Well, because by that point, it'll be plain to the disciples that this is not a victory march, that discipleship is not an easy thing. After all, they will have already scattered in quite a few directions and Peter will have denied the Lord repeatedly and they will be in much more realistic ground by the time Jesus rises from the dead. That's what's so wonderful about those images of the resurrected Christ in Revelation 5. We looked at a couple months back in Sunday school because they're so balanced in their realism. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and 
and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numberings, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who has slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing, honor, glory, might, forever. It just goes out. Everything is praising Jesus, but they're praising Jesus the Lamb having been slain. Oh yes, he's gloriously resurrected, he's ascended on high, he's the king of everything, but he's all of those things as the one having been slain. And so that slain peace is to be kept very much in the disciples' mind. See, we are who we are. As believers, verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. That is Revelation 5, 9. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, nation. Europeans, Native Americans, South Americans, Asians, You name it. You name it. How do all these different people on the earth get attached rightly to God? Through the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way. You purchased men from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's an absolutely glorious thing. So don't tell them until been raised from the dead, and they have some appreciation of the place that the death of Jesus holds in discipleship leading up to resurrection. Fourth and finally, we are to realize that we never fully understand the words and ways of God. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Literally, They grasped hold of the word of Jesus to themselves. Now that's always a good idea. They grasped hold of the word of Jesus to themselves. Um, Now they're not supposed to talk to anybody else about it, but they can talk to each other about it because they all saw it together and they do talk with each other about it. And as they talk with each other about it, it becomes plain that none of them are quite on the same page. Uh, They're discussing it. It's going back and forth. Uh, They don't agree as to what Jesus means by this really central phrase, the resurrection from the dead. What's he talking about? How do we get there? What's going on? They don't know. They don't know. Now, there's two mistakes you you, you don't want to make at this point, and we tend to make one or the other. Uh, We tend to make one or the other. 
The first mistake is to say, okay, to take my, uh, my title of the fourth point to literally, we never fully understand the words and ways of God to say, we never understand anything. All we ever have is doctrinal doubt, doctrinal confusion, doctrinal vagueness. We, you just sort of slip off into sort of a spiritual skepticism where you have nothing to stand on and no words to cling to because nobody understands anything about anything. No, no, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, we do understand things. The Bible teaches you things. There's, there's things that Christians have agreed about for a long time and, uh, and that genuine believers have been on the same page. There's lots of those things. So this, this experience is not in any way promoting a sort of doctrinal skepticism. But on the other hand, on the other hand, this is the, the three most favored insider disciples. And they are not on the same page about the words of Jesus that they just heard and the experience that they just had. Which does give us a little room for some humility, right? Because you all... We, we all know people, and maybe we've had a tendency to be this way ourselves, you know, to talk as if we've got every single spiritual question pretty much taped down. Uh, I can tell you about that. You know, I can tell you about this. Uh, just ask me, I'll let you know. I know these things. I've been studying them for a long time. Um, but there's all kinds of things that no matter how long you study them, you're never going to get everybody on the same page. Some of our guys in the, in the Thursday morning men's group, we've experienced this quite recently. You know, uh, aside from what people think, you know, we've, we've been working through Calvin's Institutes now uh, for uh, well over a year, a year and a half almost. And, you know, you actually don't get to his discussion of, uh, of predestination and free will until you're on page 960. Everybody thinks, oh, Calvin, that's all about predestination. No, no. No, you don't even get to that topic. For 960 pages. And then finally it shows up. And, and there we were a couple of months ago. We are starting to discuss this for a number of weeks. And guess what? Even with all my fine leadership, we're not on the same page. Guys, just tell you, I'm not quite convinced. Uh, you know, I'm 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 closer to Calvin than some in the in, in the class, but I don't agree with John Calvin about everything either. And there we are. We're discussing these things together, and I can tell you, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a fantastic thing. That's what the disciples are doing right here. The three of them, the three insiders, they're discussing these things together. Uh, but they're not exactly on the same page. They don't nail everything down in 10 minutes and then move on. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. And that's not what happens in the life of the church either. You know, we know things. We don't know everything. We know things. We'll never know everything. 
We'll always be working on things. We'll always be growing. We'll always be trying to learn. We'll always be trying to... And and that, as I say, is a wonderful thing as we attempt to, as just right here, hold the words of Jesus fast to ourselves. Fast to ourselves. Now, he means such that you're not going to be talking to everybody else, but they're talking to one another about it. So here we are, we're on Sunday mornings, we're in the book of Mark. You hold the words of Mark fast to yourself. On Sunday nights, we're in the book of Deuteronomy. Hold the words of Deuteronomy fast to yourself. Right after this hour, Ephesians, hold those words fast to yourself. Pastor Dan downstairs, Lord's Prayer, hold those words fast to yourself. Ladies Bible study, hold those words fast to yourself. What you're discussing at your community group that relates to the word, you hold these words fast to yourself as you move forward in discipleship, in the Christian life. So that's what you do with your mountaintop experiences. You hold the words of Jesus fast to yourself, especially that word that's at the heart of this mountaintop experience, which was, you remember, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. More carefully and more diligently and more consistently than you listen to anybody else. Listen to him. And that's what we take away from the mountaintop. And grasp to ourselves with all of our strength. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you, Lord, for Mark and his gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you'd enable us to Understand how to hold your words fast to ourselves for the forgiveness of sins, for the wisdom of our daily walk, for our understanding of life, for our ability to resist the secularity-saturated culture that rests all around us and approaches us day and night. Oh, Lord, enable us to hear your voice, to hold your words fast to ourselves. In Jesus' name we ask you. Amen.